This is Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. Each week, we feature conversations with experts in leadership, management, human resources, culture, and technology to help you succeed in this new normal. This is your host, Benoit Ardivalle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. I have the pleasure this week of speaking with Ira Wolf. Ira, you are the, well, many things. First of all, the president of Poise for the Future Company, the founder of Success Performance Solutions, a popular presenter at Sherm and Business Conference. You authored six books, including your latest, Recruiting in the Age of Googleization. Well, first of all, Ira, Welcome to the show, and thank you for being here. It's my absolute pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Hope everybody's doing well. Indeed, indeed. We can only send good wishes and good thoughts to everyone in these uh, trying times. Ira, you also refer to yourself or have been called a millennial in a boomer body. I, I'd love to hear your, your take on that. And, and just for context, I, I find it interesting because I've been joking around that I'm an old millennial, right? Technically, I'm Gen X, but I always found that when people talk about those millennials, I felt either we are all millennials or this is a mindset that cross generations. Well, we should all be millennials or maybe we should all be Gen Z, which is the generation that follows that. Uh, just just for some references, for so everyone knows what the age is, because I think everybody still considers a millennial as anybody under the age of 40. Uh, you know, we have, uh, for the first time in history, we really have four and maybe five generations working in the workplace simultaneously. So let's start with baby boomers, which is, the, is still the, the largest group, but <laughs> losing our place, the largest generation. We have a millennial, or baby boomers were born primarily between 1946 and 1964. Now, that's a pretty wide range because, because baby boomers who were born in the early 60s don't necessarily associate or they didn't necessarily have all the same experiences as those who were born in 1946 to 19, let's say, 55. So again, it's it's a white group, but they grew up together and shared many similar current events. The group that was born prior to that, which would have been the parents or the or the family of the baby boomers, uh, there's a couple different names for them: traditionalists, veterans. They were primarily born prior to 1990 or 1945, so prior to the end of World War II. But then we had Gen X, and you mentioned Gen X. Uh, they were born primarily between 1965 and 1980, and then. Uh, you had millennials, and they were born 1980 to 1995, and now or 2000, depending on. There's no magical cutoff, but you then had the Gen Z, which is the group that is now entering the workforce. So you have Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, baby boomers, and there are still some uh, veterans or traditionalists in the workplace. So you have those five groups now. The, 
people chronolot try to categorize them chronologically. And I wrote a book about that. And it's called it was called A Geek Skeezers and Googleization. I wrote that in 2008 as Gen X was growing up and millennials were coming into the workforce. I was pretty harsh on the millennials, pretty much bashed them. But the reality is that generations, although there are some chronological differences, there are obviously things that I grew up with that you could never experience, like the landing of the moon or the assassination of JFK. There are things that you, certain current events that you remember. It might be the space shuttle. It might be the recession. It might be gas shortages, whatever. But the reality is, is that we need to think about generations more, less in a chronological fashion and more as a mindset. That the fact is, is that I'm an older baby boomer. I'm, I'm a, one of the older baby boomers, yet my mindset is more of an entrepreneur, of a startup. Every day, I think of a new opportunity of something I want to start, yet my friends, my family, my stepson the other night asked me, he said, so when are you going to retire? And it's like, when I retire, this is when I will retire. And some, <laughs> sometime that may come up. But even if I retire from the business, I will not stop working. It will be because I found another interest or a passion. So the millennial in the baby boomer body, chronologically, I'm a baby boomer. Physically, I'm a baby boomer. Uh, I, I, the aches and pains, I, I can tell you, I'm, I'm certainly not as flexible, as fluid, as agile. And I certainly can't do many of the things that I, I used to do. I, I, you know, I'm still active, but I used to be more active. But my mindset how I see the world, uh, how I uh, view the world uh, is, is definitely, uh, it's a millennial. Maybe it's a Gen Z. Because millenn- just, just for reference, I gave you the dates. 1980 means if, if, if the cutoff for millennials is 1980, it means they're now 41 years old. People still treat them as high school and, and college age, you know, in, in early 20s, college age students. Uh, many of them are the owners, they're the managers. <laughs> so millennials are are in their 40s now, which is most people still blame millennials for everything that happens to a, an adolescent. Yeah, I feel like it was a good topic to sell uh, copies and articles five, 10 years ago, but it's getting old or, or maybe the millennials are getting old. The mindset, though, I think this is the, the important piece and it, it seems that it's a mix of, I mean, many things, right? But one of the, the, the dimension that you mentioned is the continuity between work and life. If, you, if we take a full life perspective, just like when you were being asked, when will you retire? Well, not really, right? Because we don't see the world in, there are times where I work and then after that I completely stop and then I do nothing. Right, we don't. I don't think we embrace this binary vision. It's more of a blend. Maybe I'm going to be less busy, but I'll be pursuing valuable activities that lead to something. It's not like the day that I, that I get 65, things stop. And that could be also the same continuity we see in our daily life, where I might be home thinking about things that are work-related, or when I'm at work, whether it's in an office or from home, I might be booking trips or doing transaction or doing things that could be called personal. But guess what? This is how the world blends these two dimensions together these days. Oh, for sure. I, 
you know, certainly I, I see what many of my colleagues and my friends are doing. And, you know, they're, some are golfing, some are traveling, not so much this past year, obviously, but they, you know, that's their goals and they can't wait to get back to that or they spend some time with their, their grandkids or their families. But I also have another group that, you know, certainly fits the stereotype of, of, of somebody who's older. They're struggling physically, emotionally. Um, they're having some difficulty that way. And yet I, I also know some millennials that are struggling. You know, there's millenn- you know the, the assumption is that the pandemic, the change, the transformation, I know we'll get into that. That's the Googleization part. Uh, the disruptions that we're feeling, the automation, the, the fear of losing your job to a robot. There are certainly millennials that are struggling with that as well as baby boomers. There's baby boomers like myself, and there's quite a few of us, by the way. I'm not the, I, I may be the exception, but there's, there's, there's a large percentage of the baby boomers that are involved in startups. They're involved with disruption. They're involved with a transformation. And then there are millennials who are struggling with, uh, you know, just because they, they've grown up in an age where, uh, a smartphone. Well, actually, they didn't grow up in an age when there was a smartphone. When they were the first smartphone didn't come out until 2000 and, 2007, I believe. And then the iPad didn't come out until 2010. So they were 27 years old when the, the smartphone, the iPhone was introduced and the iPad. So they're not the digital natives, although it's interesting is I have a cover from 1985 is a Newsweek cover. And so even people may not be familiar with Newsweek. <laughs> so, you know, it was one of the, <laughs> yesterday, every day, you know, er- every week you used to get your Newsweek or Time magazine. Uh, that's where we got the, the weekly news. And, and so both are, they're both around, but certainly in different forms and their popularity is not there. But I have a 1985 cover and they talked about the digital natives. That was you. That was Gen X. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, millennials became the digital natives. And then all of a sudden, Gen Z became the digital natives. But I have a friend, actually, he'll be on one in my podcast in a few weeks, Doug Hulan, and he talks about the Voomers, not the Zoomers, or, but the Voomers. And the Voomers are those who, where virtual reality will be than a natural form, just like owning a smartphone. There's 4 billion people on this planet. Two-thirds of the planet owns a smartphone. Uh, and yet he's talking within the next uh, five to 10 years that 1 billion people will be communicating uh, and learning and working through virtual reality. So again, it keeps changing. I think that's exciting. And yet I have other people that look at me as like, you know, that's, isn't that just for gamers? Isn't that just for kids? <laughs> and I'm looking at it as a way to really transform how we live and we play and we travel and we learn. And uh, again, so that, that's the millennial mindset. And, uh, you know, it's, it has nothing to do with our chronological age. Yep. Everybody is familiar with the term Googling to search information, but you talk about Googleization. What What is it and what does that mean for recruiting? Googleization, when I was writing my books, Geek Skeezers, I was going to be Geek Skeezers in Technology. It was also, there was a couple names for it, Wired, The Wired, The Tired in Technology, which became my subtitle. But I, somewhere I saw something about the 
monetization of, of something. And, uh, you know, certainly we were talking about Google. Google had a big presence, especially when I was writing. It still has a big presence, but it was primarily a search engine. And you're right, it was about Googling. So I, on an alliteration, purely an alliteration for a title, I came up with Geek Skeezers Googleization. And what I originally defined it as was the convergence of the wired, the tired, and technology. Since then, it's really become more, well, it's still that, but I, I define it as, as the convergence of business technology and people. And again, it, it's an abstract word or an abstract thing, but it describes what our world is. We really are connected to Google, Googling, especially last year. I mean, it, it, it saved us through the mm-hmm. pandemic. And then at the same time, we're still having this convergence of people, of humans and machines, not necessarily that our world would be taken over by a technology or taken over that we're not going to lose our jobs to machines, but the jobs will be different because we will work, we'll be working hand in hand with them, just as we were last year. We couldn't have gone to school. We couldn't have gone to work. Uh, even people who did physically go to work uh, we're often using robots and, and automation to deliver our packages, to keep our keep our world turning, uh, to to keep our food on the table, to to service us, to take care of us in hospitals. There was it was all technology, it was man and technology using that together. So, Googleization is really the convergence of of people, business, and technology. Yeah, no, that makes sense. We definitely live in this area. And then when we talk about recruiting, because I know it was the, the title of your last book. So curious to see your take on where recruiting is and how it is adapting or not adapting enough to the age of Googleization. Well, I think you summed it up at the end. <laughs> uh, my my opinion, <laughs> and, and people have heard me voice this, is that we are certainly not, recruitment is not doing enough to keep up. The most popular keynote uh, when I talk, and I've been doing most of them virtually, has been your candidate experience is all FCDD'd up. So it's your candidate experience is all effed up. What FCDD is, is it represents frustration, confusion, disappointment, and distraction. And you think about what it's like for someone to apply for a job. And going back to Google, well, you can Google your job, or you can go to ZipRecruiter, or you can go to Indeed, and you your a job title pops up, and you're interested in applying. And the first thing is you go to the company website to learn about the company, and you can't even, you, there's nothing about jobs on it, or there is, but it's buried. The link to it might be in the footnotes. When you get there, there's nothing to describe what it's like to work for that company. There's no information. So consider as a consumer what it's like. You know, and again, Amazon setting the standards and e-commerce, but especially Amazon, is that when I search for, when I'm looking for something, it doesn't matter, you know, if it's food, clothing, equipment, electronics, you usually end up on an Amazon site. It gives you a complete description. It, it You get people's opinions, reviews. There's a Q&A there that if you have a question about the product, you can get to that. You can compare prices. You can do all that information 
within a few clicks. When you go to apply for a job, you go into this void. You get basically the job description, which usually doesn't tell you a whole lot. It's a template. It lists a bunch of responsibilities, but it doesn't really tell you what the job's really like. It doesn't describe who you'll be working for, who's on your team, what you'll be doing, what the culture is like, what your opportunities are. It doesn't give you, it typically, in many cases, doesn't provide your salary, may not even, it it gives you some uh, loose description of your benefits. And then when you click apply, you have to register. It would be like every time you went to Amazon, that the first thing that they ask you to do was to fill out a financial statement uh, with all this information, and then you may never hear from them. you, You may fall into this void. Well, that's what recruitment's like. It basically is a process where once you, even if you are interested and you click to apply, you have a very long application often. You fill it out and then it falls into this void. It may be days, weeks, or never until you hear from the company. They ask you to fill out a lot more information and you still don't have an opportunity to talk with anybody about the questions that you have because it really is a very 1970-ish process. Yeah, I mean, you you get used to all the convenience of the different consumer technologies, and then you have to face the the standard job application. I mean, it's uh, not a surprise that there are so many memes and jokes online after that. If you start Googling for that, you find some pretty uh, (laughs) interesting representation of that. So the process, yeah, so the process, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but the process, but but the process that I described has been the same process uh, since we, literally since, you know, I I, I remember people landing on the moon. If I, if we could roll the clock back to 1969 and I was a young baby, boomer just graduating school and applying for my first jobs, the process hasn't changed. The only difference is, is that the application is now online. But the rest of it, or for many companies, there are certainly companies that have done, you know, have transformed their process and are doing well. And and we can if anybody's interested, I can give you some examples of companies that that have done well. But most companies are still using the same process. Uh, that we post a job and then you have an application. And not that that process is wrong, but they're using some of the same steps. So instead of posting a job in the weekend newspaper, because that was the most read, they posted onto Indeed uh, or one of the other job boards. So that hasn't changed. The But the comparison, I used Amazon before, is Amazon updates their software every 11.6 seconds. Now, that doesn't mean they're doing a complete rewrite, but based on the experience of the candidate. So we're all familiar with going to an Amazon or or one of the e-commerce sites, and we click on something that we're interested in, and it immediately gives you an alternative or it'll give you a recommendation. People who bought this also bought another product. If you don't click on that, if you don't respond to that if it's if it's not something that the consumers are reacting to they get rid of it uh, so they're constantly updating their software and yet my example of of that the job application of how companies hire people has not changed radically for the last 60 years which is insane so again there, there's so much more than that can be done 
Uh, and again, my pet, one of my pet peeves is, is the application from that. But everyone, uh, it doesn't matter that they're applying for a job. Consumers, our world can access information at a few clicks, except for a job. And I want to highlight and repeat again this important point, because sometimes when we talk about the challenge of online recruitment, we talk as if these challenges come from the technology we had to use in the last 10 or 12 years. What you're highlighting here is that, no, actually, these technologies were just a reflection of the process. And that's the process itself that needs to be transformed if we want to create a better experience. So I think that was worth mentioning, right? It, it put things in a wider historical perspective. Absolutely. And we talked about mindset earlier. And, and this is a mindset. It's a mindset on the, on the part of the company, uh, on the part of HR. But one of the things that has also changed to a great deal and and coming out of this pandemic is going to even be more important because it's definitely a seller's market. I mean, it definitely is or I'm sorry, it's a buyer's market. It's it's job seekers are in control. The there was a big article and again, this is especially in the US, but the the article over the weekend in I believe it was the Wall Street Journal indicated how companies of, of, in, in all industries, even in leisure and hospitality, are struggling to find enough people to do the jobs. Now, not every single job, but almost every company has one particular job that's difficult to fill. It's always been difficult to fill. And right now, even with higher unemployment and people trying to get back to some sense of normalcy, they're unable to fill the jobs. And one of the things that people tend to miss is, and I discovered this uh, over the last year or two in some research, is that changing a job is incredibly stressful. It's one of the reasons that people even work for toxic bosses or toxic cultures, and yet they don't leave jobs. Uh, There was an article in the uh, Harvard Business Review about toxic bosses, and they said, I don't remember the exact percentage, but I believe it was 60% or 60-some percent of people who admit to having a toxic boss, it takes them two plus years to change. And the reason is this uh, stress scale, things that stress us out in life. The changing a job on a scale of zero to 100 is 36. Now, that may not mean a whole lot when you think about it. And you go, well, that's, you know, at least it's in the lower 50, except at 37, at almost the same point of stress of significant stress in our life is the death of a friend. So the stress that the death of a close friend brings you, and you know, for anybody who's lost a close friend, they they, they know how devastating that is and how the anxiety and stress and depression that that may bring on is changing a job brings on almost an identical amount of stress. Yet companies don't take, I don't want to say take advantage of it. They don't acknowledge how stressful it is for somebody to leave a job. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a skill, in a tight market, when you're basically hiring people from other companies who have the skills that you need, or in the case that many companies are facing now is coming back to work, that people are fearful. Is it a safe place? What am I going to do with my kids? What about my pets that are that have been with me for the last 15 months? What about the commute? There are a lot of fears mm-hmm. that people have, and companies still think they're doing 
employees a favor or candidates a favor by saying, we're offering them a job, they don't have one, or they're looking for a change. So they should be grateful to us for offering our job. And they're just going to have to put up with it if we make our experience, if we make the process difficult, if we make it frustrating, confusing, distracting, and disappointing, so be it. Let them figure it out. If they're not willing to go through our hurdles, then we don't want them. And I think it's going to be accentuated by the fact that a lot of people spent the last year hanging to their job because of the uncertainty of what would happen. I was reading that 73, I believe, 73% of employees feel like they did not progress in the last year. I mean, for all kinds of reasons, that's understandable. One of the impact of that is that when economies start to open, and we already see that, people will want to jump ship and better be an attractive employer if you want to recruit the, the top talent that will come in that, that big uh, rehire. I think you hit it on the head right there. That was perfect, that you're going to have to be an attractive employer. And so that brings up the question, what's an attractive employer? Mm-hmm. Well, employees are going to, to look for companies that treated their employees well. Not that they just threw money at them or threw bonuses at them, but what will you know, did did they communicate with them? Did they feel comfortable? Did they, you know, what tools were they using? Were they using something like Slack and Zoom? Was there fatigue from from using that because they, they tried to use them instead of meetings like they used to have? Or did they use them to, and did the managers and management recognize that uh, people were struggling, uh, you know, that they were, one is just the, the idea of being quarantined at home, but many people were home with multiple children. They were home with their spouse. Maybe they were fortunate enough to have two working adults, but they were also parenting and they were teaching. And maybe their home was not set up to have two working offices and a school place. They didn't have the bandwidth. They didn't have the time. You saw so many creative people. How they converted a closet to an office using an iron bo- ironing board as your table. The, you know, around the kitchen table, you had two children that were on their laptops or or tablets going to school and you had the two adults, the two parents working. It was not an ideal office environment and many people didn't have the resources or or some even the abilities or the finances to improve that, but they got through it. But the question is, is how did the company recognize that? Did the boss recognize that or did they treat them like, hey, we're going to give you an extra $50 which I'm sure they were grateful to receive it, but it really didn't significantly change the environment. People needed safety for quite a while. And some companies did really did it very, very well. And they learned how to use some of the technologies, as I said, as I mentioned, like Slack and and uh, other, even the video conferences and, and other ones really struggled with it. So what was it like? Some companies still had opportunity. They, they took the advantage for training. Uh, they, they had, uh, crucial conversations with people on top of all this, it wasn't only the pandemic, but then you had, we, we certainly had our, our, our racial and social mm-hmm. movements. Again, the U S was certainly in the highlight for that. There's a lot of uneasiness for that. How were those addressed? The fact that people weren't going to work, so they didn't have to face their colleagues and face their coworkers. But, but what about now? 
So there, there was a lot of things. So there's companies that did very, very well on the communication. And when employees start looking to change jobs, that's one of the first things they're going to look for is what was it like to work for the company during the pandemic? And again, some companies got it and some perform miserably and they're going to really, really struggle going forward. And one thing for sure is that everybody had to be quite adaptable in the last year. And that's a topic I think is also important in your reflection, your work, your your consulting. You talk about an adaptability quotient and how it's different from IQ, intellectual, and EQ, emotional quotient. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because I think this is certainly one of the real virtue that we're looking for employees, for managers, for leaders, um, the fluidity of thinking, the era of innovation, business reinvention, flex work, it all requires a lot of adaptability. And it sounds like this is something that we can measure and improve? Well, that was certainly one of the things that I am passionate about, but it was, I got introduced to the adaptability quotient, a new version of it uh, that was researched through, basically through Singularity University, the United Nations, HSBC Bank, and a few universities, uh, additional universities. And what they were able to do was identify 15 dimensions that were impactful on how people adapt. And and I want to let everybody know, I mean, adaptability has much more to do than learning how to live in a digital or a virtual world. It had to do with everything from emotional intelligence, from empathy to understanding. And out of those 15 dimensions were broken into three areas. It was called, the model is called ACE, A-C-E. And A is ability, C is character, and E is environment. Where I spent a lot of time was not, because we, we're not about to change somebody's character. It's important to know how your, how your personality might impact your ability to adapt. And unless you change your job or your friends, you can't, and your family, you may not be able to change your environment. But the 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 five abilities were were fascinating, and and some of the listeners may be familiar with some of these. The five abilities are grit, resilience, mental flexibility, growth mindset, and unlearning. And uh, let me briefly kind of give you a definition of each, and then they're all re- they're all interrelated. You can't do one well. Uh, with that. And I know a lot of people in the last year focused on grit and resilience. So grit is that perseverance. It's that it's that passion for, it's that marathon runner. It's the mountain climber. It's the, it's the surgeons and the healthcare workers that we had last year that uh, certainly were passionate about what they did and they persevered, they endured. The reality is if you don't have some of the other aspects then you basically are the survivor, but in time it gets old. I mean, you, you sort of make that achievement, but how do, can you keep doing it when people keep throwing roadblocks and challenges at you? So grit's important. We need every single person on the planet needs grit because there's going to be other there's going to be other challenges we face, whether it's a job loss, whether it's an illness, whether it's another pandemic, whether it's technology, climate change. We're all going to face those. Resilience is built is bouncing back. It's we're all again we're going to encounter 
setback. So how do people bounce back from a setback? Do they have that? So grit and resilience are basically fundamental skills that we all need, but they don't necessarily help us grow. They help us keep going and they help us recover, but they help us cope. They, they help us get through things. In order to grow and thrive, we need mental flexibility, growth mindset, and unlearning. Mental flexibility is the ability to have two opposing thoughts in your head at the same time. It's the ability to watch CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and not get angry and not take sides, but to try to make sense of it. And there's not many people that are very good at that. You mentioned earlier about binary choices. Is mental flexibility is the opposite of, of making binary choices. It's making sense of, of all these things that go about us. Growth mindset, uh, for anybody who's interested, a lot of great work done by Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K. She studied that, and she found that fixed mindset is someone who eventually learns to protect their image they protect their reputation that they that they believe that intelligence and smartness uh, is a is a personal gift that you either have it or you don't where growth mindset is the belief that we learn from our mistakes that we're passionate about continuous learning that there is an opportunity out there if if you're not trying you you're failing I mean, basically, if you don't take that first step, if you don't take that first swing, if you don't, if you don't ask for something, then you'll never get it because nobody's just going to hand it to you. So growth mindset is that open-mindedness, that willingness to try new things and learn new things. And then unlearning is the recognition that we may have been successful. We've gotten to this place in time. We got our job. We got our job title. We got our role because of experiences that we've had. But some of those same experiences, some of the things that we learned are no longer true or as true as they used to be or as no longer reliable. And so we need to understand what behaviors, what skills are no longer going to be as effective and not necessarily forget them, but we've got to put them away, put them, in, put them on our mental archive. I talk about unlearning as like defragging our hard drive. When it gets full, you're running out of space, and then you realize you have all these temporary files, all these extraneous files, and stuff is scattered all over the place. So you run the defrag software, not to get too technical, but uh, I'm sure people have done it. And, yeah, yeah. And, and they reorganize, and all of a sudden you had uh, 10% capacity or, or open space, and now you have 50 you got rid of all the things that you don't need, or you don't have to have immediate access to them. They're still important, but they're not at the forefront anymore. And we can do that with our minds. So part of it is, if you think about what some of the most important issues of our time are, diversity, inclusion, equity, that's certainly in, in HR, in, in, for companies, a big, big issue. That requires people to adapt. It requires going through the steps. It requires grit and resilience. So anybody who's leading the change is going to need grit and resilience. They're going to have to be passionate about it. They're going to have to persevere because there's going to be pushback. They're going to have to be resilient because there's going to be setbacks. But they also have to have an open mindset. In order to have empathy, you have to walk in some, not only stand in somebody's shoes, but walk in somebody's shoes. How do you do that if you don't have growth mindset, if you don't have mental 
flexibility because mental flexibility is, is again, boy, I never saw the world from that point of view. So was I wrong that I didn't believe that before? Or is there some truth in what I believe and saw, but there's also truth in what the other person saw? How do we make sense of that? And then certainly unlearning the behaviors that got us into this mess. I grew up, you know, there's a lot of history I learned that's turning out to not be so true. It was, it was a bit slanted. And how do I make sense of that? Where do I go from there? What, what do I need to unlearn uh, what beliefs do I have that I need to unlearn in order to become not only a better person, but to help the world become a better place? So you can talk about diversity and inclusion. You can talk about how how can you, for those who are familiar with emotional intelligence, it's not just about self-awareness and self-management, but in order to become uh, have high EQ, to become a better leader, a better manager, we need to understand how people how are they feeling? How do we recognize when people are authentic and, and, and true or having some challenges? How do we recognize all the people in the room, not just those who look like us and feel like us? And then how do we make a difference? How do we help bring them on board? How can you do that without adaptability? How can you do that without uh, growth mindset and unlearning and resilience because it's not all just because you admit to someone that you're willing to change doesn't mean that they're going to accept you as that new person. So adaptability really, I'm so passionate about it because every time I hear something that we need to change, again, whether it's diversity, inclusion, have more empathy, we need to build collaboration, we need to change our company culture, whatever it is, it's going to require that each and every person become more adaptable. And that's not, we're not even into the point of talking about the the threat of jobs that we need to learn new skills. You know, you're either going to look at uh, technology as your enemy, and it's going to take your job and it's going to make your life more complicated, or you're going to look at it as your friend and it's going to create opportunity and it's going to help you grow. How do we get the people who look at it as dystopian and as fearful and as a threat to the other side? Because that's worrisome. Uh, The World Economic Forum estimated that 375 million people are at risk for being left behind within the next 10 years. McKinsey just came out with a brand new report and said that 28% of the workforce, or an increase of 28% in our workforce, uh, 17 million people in the U.S. are at risk for losing their job. But there are more jobs being created. The problem is, is they're going to have to learn how to adapt. So clearly, adaptability will be a key for job seekers, for employees, for HR. Anything else um, HR leaders who, who listen to this should be thinking for the, the near future? Yeah. So, I mean, we talked about the individual abilities, and that's what you can change. That's what we can help people do. And think of the life lessons. I mean, think of how adaptability not only helps them become a better employer, but a better person, and and how they would value that experience, that opportunity. If 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 your workers are more 
or more adaptable. They're not as fearful of the change. They can transfer. These are all transferable skills. They can transfer those skills to their spouse, to their children, to their families. How does that help them prepare? So again, it's not just, this isn't just like teaching somebody welding skills or Excel, you know, how typing skills or Excel skills. These are skills that, that somebody could take home and, and everybody in, in the family can do that. So now there's a, a, a better tie-in to the company culture. There's a value that you've helped create. There's an appreciation and recognition from the employees and vice versa that will make that better. So th- there's no question that this should be led by HR. I don't know if it will, because HR probably needs is one of those functions in the business that needs to change a lot. Uh, they're good people. Uh, good intentions. Uh, certainly, uh, HR is usually the group that that leads the e- the EQ training and the diversity training. Uh, but understanding how do we get more people on board is going to require each and every HR person, each and every trainer, each and every manager to have a high to to inc- improve their AQ or to understand it understanding what are the components it's not just about being flexible you can't just teach people grit you can't just hire for grit and resilience that's going to get people through the moment but it's not going to help them grow and if you want to innovate and grow as a company you're going to have to do that so uh, adaptability is again I don't know any I don't know anything about our future that being more adaptable won't help you uh, do that with less challenge and more success. Yeah, indeed. Well, my last question for you, Aaron, and thank you so much for sharing your perspective and learning and wisdom. Where can we learn more about your work and your thinking? Well, certainly you can Google me. <laughs> That's the... <laughs> Otherwise, that would be a shame. <laughs> so I, I am certainly out there. My company website is successperformancesolutions.com. Uh, you can also go to irawolf.com. I'm active, very active on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. So I invite people to, to look for me there, send me an invitation. I'll be happy to connect. Uh, you can, my book, it talks a lot about what we just talked about, but not everything is recruiting in the age of Googleization. You can easily get that up on Amazon or, or your, your favorite bookstore. Uh, and with continue with the Googleization theme, I've, I do have a newsletter and I have a community we're, again, constantly talking about this stuff. It's called googleizationnation.com. It's free. Please subscribe to that. And uh, that's probably the one place you can go to and then get all the rest of the information because I'll be in contact with you through that. Googleizationnation.com. Fantastic. Ira Wolf, thank you so much for joining us today. My absolute pleasure. Be safe and certainly be adaptable. <laughs> well said. Well said. This was Abroad Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. I hope you learned something valuable. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and any feedback or rating is greatly appreciated. On LinkedIn and in real life, my name is Benoit Hardivelli and I thank you for your time.